Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Centralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Az, I am president at the Cooperative Cleros. And today our guest is Edward Castronova, a renowned economist and professor of telecommunications at Indiana University. He is widely recognized as a pioneer in the field of virtual economies and online gaming, and he has written extensively on the subject and conducted groundbreaking research on the economics of virtual world. So Edward, or Ted, should I call you? Welcome to, to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Frederico. You can call me Ted, that's fine. Well, Ted, let's, let's start as we start with all of our guests. I mean, tell me a bit about uh, your background I mean, and how you ended up doing I mean, research about virtual worlds. Well, I mean, it's a story of mid-career failure, really. I, uh, I got a PhD in economics and then I started working in an area that I don't know that it didn't seem to be going anywhere. My career wasn't going anywhere and I got depressed and I was uh, living by myself in an apartment in Los Angeles in this sort of post-industrial wasteland. And I said, to heck with it. I'm just going to play video games. I'm going to you know, do my teaching and go home and play video games. That's all I'm going to do. And uh, as I was playing the video games, I started to notice economic activity in it. And I thought I thought it would be funny to write a serious paper about a video game economy. I thought that would be a big joke. And a lot of people would be excited to read this joke paper. And as I started to collect data, the numbers got really big. <laughs> and so it changed from being a joke to being a fairly serious analysis of a virtual economy. And uh, that paper was picked up by a lot of places. And I just started to, I just continued uh, in that area ever since. I mean, let me ask first, I mean, what were your favorite video games back, back then? And what, what were you playing? So um, I, I think I, my, my game history is playing a lot of solo uh, war games when I was a kid and Dungeons and Dragons. So When computer games came out, I think the first one I got seriously addicted to was Civilization. Hmm. And then um, I remember seeing the game EverQuest uh, on shelves in stores. And I thought, if I ever start playing that game, I may never stop because it was this online multiplayer D&D game that went on forever. And I thought, my gosh, you know. And so I finally did start playing it, and then I got hooked on that that genre of games, the massively multiplayer online RPGs. I played quite a bit Civilization myself. I even played Civilization One. I mean, so mm -hmm. that tells us a bit of how old I am. But um, that's that's uh, that's really. I mean, I always thought that you know Sid Meier is kind of one of uh, genius mind who having developed all that you know system of I say, mm -hmm. incentives and rules for the game. Uh, mm -hmm. It's quite, you know, sophisticated. So yeah, and it's a it's a really powerful theory of history as well. You know, it just says uh, technology is what drives the bus, and the first the first civilizations to get the technological advance become more powerful than the others, and that's how the world goes. And uh, it fits history pretty well. I mean, to me, it was it was genius. Um, so let, let's 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 get. To, uh, so you 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 start you're, you're in this mid-career failure and then you play video games and you you publish this first paper. What was that paper about exactly? So uh, it was an attempt to do a 
World Bank type study of a country. And it was about the game EverQuest. So, you know, every once in a while, the World Bank, the IMF will re re release a report, you know, the economy of Poland, something like this. And so I took the methods from those kinds of reports and I applied it to this video game economy, treating this game EverQuest as if it was another country. And so I collected prices of goods and I calculated an inflation rate and I calculated labor productivity and population and all, all of these things that would be in a normal, normal report. And that was the that was the goal. And it would have been funny, except that the numbers were big. And then it was thought provoking. <laughs> I mean, what was the... I, I imagine you know the, the 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 feedback you got from your I mean academic community the peers what did they tell you I mean why, why are you losing your time like studying this we might wonder yeah. what was the feedback back then well I mean economists didn't care and they still kind of don't care but other people really were very interested in it um, in fact almost everyone but economists was interested in it I'd say the first academic community to really show a lot of interest in what was happening was the legal academic community. Because they they were very interested in in uh, the concept of property rights in virtual goods, uh, because you know it was a practical issue. I mean, I was at a there was a mock trial at a big convention in Las Vegas, where uh, the the trial was about someone who stole someone else's virtual sword, and could they sue for damages? And my job was to provide expert testimony that yeah i mean a virtual sword is actually worth something in real terms so so yeah the, the legal implications were the first ones um but this is super interesting and uh, and what happened to that sword i mean did they go to court or what, what how did they resolve disputes about a virtual sword in a virtual game so that that particular thing was a, it was a mock trial which meant it wasn't real it was just for demonstration and uh So the, the, the point was to, to see how a judge and a jury would evaluate this. And uh, they ended up saying that the sword really did have value and the, uh, the claimant uh, had a right to constant uh, 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 compensation. So and then, you know, different countries have different laws about it. Um, So I, I think in principle, I think Japan, for example, uh, a virtual item does, is explicitly something valuable under the law. And uh, it's funny, though, there haven't been too many direct tests of that in court cases because the companies are very good about pre preventing that kind of theft. But like, yeah. Think about it. Every time, every time someone goes to jail because of a cryptocurrency crime, That is exactly what we're talking about, right? When they say you lost $200 million worth of Bitcoin, it's treated as real money. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, well, in the early days, it wasn't so obvious that the, that the courts would treat Bitcoin as real, real stuff. I think maybe because now we are already in the, in the post of in blockchain world. I mean, but I can imagine going back to, people still think like this but but I mean um, for example they will ask you okay yeah but you know these are bits this can be copied uh, as many times as you mm -hmm. want who cares you know you just make another sword right uh, mm -hmm. and because there's no scarcity right in, in the world of the right. bits what, what would you say to, to these people 
Well, I mean, there, there are always two answers. I've been saying this for 20 years. On the one hand, there's more virtual stuff in the real world than people realize. And on the other hand, in the virtual world, there's more real stuff than people realize. So let's take the real world first. Um, you can paint a car any color, right? But typically you have to pay more money to get certain colors because they're special colors, right? And so the fact that something is not scarce is not the only thing that determines its value. You know, in, in where I live, um, uh, you know, diamonds are basically worthless. They don't provide any value whatsoever. You can't really do anything with it. You can't, but of course it's very expensive. And uh, if you think about paper money, I mean, if you look, this is, uh, I have a dollar bill in my hand, you can hear it. Um, it's worthless, it's a piece of paper. And yet people will give me a Coke for this piece of paper. So this is all happening in the real world, but you can see it. It's, there's a lot of virtuality involved in those transactions. And then when you look at the virtual world, there's a lot of reality in there. So people spend time to acquire, you know, some kind of super duper sword. It actually takes them time. Time is real. I mean, it's a real sacrifice. So, or another thing is skill. Skill is a real thing. And people who acquire goods in virtual worlds sometimes only get those goods because they are very skilled. So, uh, you know, you can see a, a lot of real things happening in virtual worlds. So somewhere in between, between the real world being partly virtual and the virtual world being partly real, you start to see how the, the lines between these two types of economies are really quite fuzzy. Um, and also let me add one also piece of information here. Like some people, and this is in connection to, well, at the, back then it was second life, you know, some people start to think of their virtual existence as the more real one than mm -hmm. the myth world, let's say, right? So they might be more interested in this virtual sword, um, I mean, that owning a Ferrari and uh, no, because mm -hmm. that's where they get their self-esteem and value, right? Yeah. Well, economists have said for hundreds of years that the price of goods is affected not only by the resources required to make them, but also the subjective valuation of the person, which really, from, from an economic standpoint, you really can't question why someone thinks something is valuable. Again, to return to the example of diamonds, we really can't inquire as to why people like small, shiny stones. We, we, you know, that's for psychologists and, and artists to worry about. But from an economic standpoint, we simply observe it, right? It's a simple fact that they like it. So if we have some people who think that what happens in an online world is the most important thing for them, As you know, if, if I'm a social critic or a psychologist, I, I can explore that. But from an economic standpoint, it's simply the fact that they are willing to sacrifice real money, real time, real effort, real skill in order to get these things. That's all that matters for the economic analysis. Um, brings back the subjective theory of value discussion, you know, to, <laughs> to mm -hmm. the present day in some, some way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me a bit about, um, so since you mentioned, how did you first learn about, about blockchain and, and how is, do you think this changes, you know, the virtual worlds? 
Well, you know, blockchain started to appear in, in for all of us when when uh, um, Bitcoin started, and we all had to we all had to you know dive into information theory a little bit to understand how it works. And then it was just a, a question of how how far would virtual currencies penetrate the uh, the financial system, right? And I think I've always been a little more cynical and negative about um, crypto than a lot of people because I just I just see the government being able to get involved in and squash almost any kind of human activity. I mean, you might remember, uh, you know, without any of us dating ourselves, but in the year 2000, if you had said that the internet would become a widespread tool of of suppressing information, everyone then would have said, that's crazy. You know, the internet is where people are going to be able to say absolutely whatever they want without any consequences. Hmm. And now we live in a world where if you say the wrong thing on the internet, you can lose your job. So, uh, and you know, and that's a, that's a, a fascinating a fascinating shift. But for me, it, it, it was an example of how um, our, our dreams about what a technology can do need to be modified by what, what we know that, let's say, governments can do or social norms, right? Those things have great power as well. So I've always been a little bit hesitant to jump on the Bitcoin wagon, although I will admit, like many people, I could have bought a whole ton of those things and I didn't. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> uh, but I don't know that I would buy a whole bunch of them now. I mean, uh, you know, it's always, it's hard to see what the future is going to hold. Very hard. You know what for me clicked about um, blockchain? Uh, so we all, we have all seen, you know, Ready Player One type of, of movies, you know. But, the, you know, the, the scary thing of that is that you know, this metaverse is like, like owned by just one, I mean, company. And uh, mm -hmm. this kind of uh, gives a lot of, of power to just, I mean, one, I mean, call it Facebook or whoever wins, you know, this. But uh, mm -hmm. to me, it was like a kind of a political change from, you know, absolute monarchies to like a republic mm -hmm. governed by users and governed where people have some choice and power of decision and how to make the rules on that. So that's why, I mean, we thought about governance being a very important uh, feature of um, online communities and virtual worlds. I know what is your take on that? Wow. Those are really big questions. And uh, I know intellectuals who have been wrestling with them since 2001 and before. Um, like Originally, the discussion was whether people in virtual world should have property rights and have the ability to form uh, uh, representative assemblies and, and demand changes in the policies of their games. So that, that debate goes back a long way. But you see what's happened is the issues and problems inside video games have metastasized like a cancer and become the problems of the world as a whole. Just as something like Bitcoin is, is an example of You know, virtual currencies jumping out of games and going into the real world, we have these governance problems uh, that are doing the same thing. Uh, and I know in most of the books, it's true. They treat the metaverse as if it's owned by a single entity. And then we had this glorious period where we thought there are going to be a million voices 
on the internet and, and we'll all have equal access to the microphone. And now we find ourselves in this shady in-between where there appears to be an, a nobility, an aristocracy mm. of some kind of uh, people who are highly skilled, very high levels of cognition, have been raised in environments where they know a lot about the technology and uh, they, they, you know, they seem to be able to come quickly to shared opinions on any manner of different things, whether it's Ukraine or in this country, we recently had a scare about uh, stoves that use natural gas as opposed to electricity. And I suppose where you are, there are other issues. And it's sort of surprising how all of the in people are all saying the same thing at the same time. It's it's something that I wouldn't have predicted. I would have predicted either a monarchy, as you say, or democracy. And we seem to have this oligarchy or this, this feudal class that talks about things behind the scenes. And then all we ever see is this uniform opinion on, you know, whatever the, the topic is. And uh, I still haven't figured that out, but it it's not anything anyone expected. That's for sure. Um, that's, that's super interesting. So, you no, know, I mean, from, from my perspective, so I am, I am from, from Argentina. I'm, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, from a very far away place, you know, and, you know, for me, what was fascinating about, about crypto is that this possibility of, it doesn't matter where you are, you know, you can still, mm -hmm. you know, work for people in anywhere in the world and then they can just pay you uh, so it's just mm -hmm. like a way I mean and in virtual worlds they don't even know who I am I mean I can have mm -hmm. this nickname you know and they don't know who's the person behind that and so mm -hmm. to me it was like uh, you know this and to come back to the <laughs> metaphor of Ray Prayer 1 you know remember that they were living in I mean, these shanty towns you know very poor in the real world but you know in the in, in the Virtual world, they were like, a, I mean, I guess they were happy, you know, and they were, mm -hmm. I mean, they were equals because and yeah. you could be, had the prestige or the reputation, it didn't matter where you were born, right? Just matter who you were in that game, what you could do in that game, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been saying my, my 2005 book, I really put emphasis on the fact that we can't really blame people who have uninteresting daily lives, lives without meaning. We can't blame them for wanting to go into a virtual world and be someone special. You know, what? What if someone's daily life is to work at Starbucks, you can't blame them for wanting to be a starship captain, okay? And I, I feel like this is a place where video games and Web3 more generally are, it's holding up a mirror of criticism to our real world our real world is just not providing people with a sense of meaning and uh yeah sure they're running off to to video games and I, many times I, i'll i'll be giving a talk to a room full of fairly successful people and i and i say it makes no sense to you because you're flying on an airplane and going back to a nice hotel and there's going to be a nice cocktail hour and we're all very very important aren't we but that the 99 of the people in this world don't live that way. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have to think about this from their point of view, if, if we're going to be able to successfully predict what's going to happen. Tell, um, tell me a bit about, so 
What were the main findings in this, like, I, I guess, like 30 years researching virtual worlds? I mean, <laughs> what, what what would you say are the main things that you learned and what were things that were unexpected maybe and that, that you still learn? Well, I, the, the two things, the, the first thing was unexpected, which was uh, the the total value of, of economic transaction that was happening in virtual environments. So that goes back to right at the start. That was the that was the aha, you know, oh, my gosh. That's an awful lot of human activity and, and it can be measured economically. So that was really something. And uh, and I think also right around then, you know, it was it was maybe not so surprising. Once that I'd seen that, I, I felt like I could see a lot about what the future would look like. Okay. The difference, there there are two main things where my thinking has adapted um since then. The first one is at that time, I thought that individual games would get bigger and internet activity would come inside of them. So I mm. thought, for example, that a person would want to be a, a certain sort of elf all day and that their email would come to them as an elf and that their uh, uh, text messages would come and their job offers would come and all oh, they'd be an elf. And instead, what happened was things that were generated within video games and virtual worlds came out into the outer world, making the outer world more video game like. So for example, uh, if you think about Instagram, uh, you know, people are crafting an avatar. Okay. They didn't make themselves an elf and then bring their contacts in. Instead, they create a, a, a self for their contacts. I mean, even to the point where some people have like their Instagram and then their real Instagram, where they really <laughs> say how they feel. Hmm. So, so that was a surprise. But you can see it now in the way that the the amount of time that people spend looking at screens is just going up. And I view all of that as basically virtual world activity. But it's not formally in a game. So that was a surprise. And then the second one, especially more recently, is the rapidity of change. So. Um, especially in the last four or five years, I've been thinking, oh, you know, oh, I think how this is all going to work out. I have a pretty good sense of it. And I'm just shocked at how quickly AI has gotten to the level that I thought in my head, when that happens, that's going to trigger some big changes. So the, the speed of it is surprising even to me. How how do you imagine? So you, you, you said that one of the first people were... Uh, interested in this virtual world were lawyers. How mm -hmm. do you imagine, you know, the, the legal world evolving into this, um, you know, uh, virtual worlds? I mean, um, will they have like a private internal, like legal systems? Will they still go to traditional systems? This is something of very much of interest to us because that's exactly what we, what we work on. Well, I think, uh, and I wrote a post on my webpage about this. I think there is significant political risk. Okay, so uh, we, we've seen uh, the, the powers that be have re a remarkable ability to come together and affect things if they want to. So imagine two futures for, let's say, blockchain. And, and this is very crude. I mean, I'm not claiming to really say anything all that realistic, but let's just imagine for a minute that on the one hand, we have a crypto that performs 
however it wants to perform and it does whatever it wants to do. And, then, and on the other hand, we have a crypto that conforms as tightly as possible to the wishes of the people who are currently in power. Imagine those two kinds of futures for crypto. Um, I think that first one where crypto tries to go its own way will eventually trigger a massive response. And uh, I, you know, we none of us can predict what would happen other than that there will be conflict and people will go to jail, okay? And with the other one, okay, maybe there won't be that much conflict, but I think many of the dreams of people currently involved in this sector will will come to an end, which will also be tragic. And so I have sort of a, I, I'm not sure how those two visions will will shake out, but uh, I I just I, I just feel like I, I want to be the voice that says, watch out, just watch out. These folks can do a lot. Hmm. What do you see as, generally speaking, you know, the, the, the main risks of us being more and more time in these virtual worlds? I mean, well, what, what could go wrong? I mean, to expand a bit on, on your previous answer. Well, um, hmm. there, there are several layers of what could go wrong. <laughs> so maybe starting at the top layer, um, you know, I imagine people who are perfectly happy and spend all of their life in a chair. Okay, and mm. that that poses a real problem for um, the liberal order. As you think about it, we would what would we do? We would we would ask people to vote on whether we should change any of this, and they would all say, "No, no, no! This is marvelous. This is wonderful." Mm. So, if we let people vote for the future, they might vote for that. <laughs> and, and you know, from my perspective, sort of standing outside of it, I think that's not good for the human person. I, I don't like that. That's that's just my judgment, right? Um, so there's that sort of very high level concern. Becoming more granular, um, I think, uh, you know, there there are risks of uh, people in blockchain running afoul of some kind of law somewhere and finding themselves arrested somewhere and being in jail and and uh, having an experience like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange mm -hmm. and. Uh, and then then what seems to happen is there's a chilling effect, right? Once some things like that happen and everybody in the sector starts changing what they're doing. Uh, so I, I would say the, the first thing I talked about is one of these long run nightmare scenarios. But I think in more in the short run, you, you know, we, we should watch out for these sort of demonstrative flexes of state power and see how how everyone uh, reacts to those. How how are states currently like uh, intervening in these virtual wars? You know, like uh, I mean, police has you know cyber agencies trying to put order into this. You know, how, how does it work for people who who don't know very much about this? How, how what is the role of enforcement agencies and government in this? You know, you know, cloud wars. I mean, the things that have happened so far, for example, is. Uh, Um, there was a site called Silk Road that involved internet trade of things that governments don't like to see traded. And you would think that a person on the internet could be safe, but no, they found that person and arrested them and that person's in jail. Um, so there's those sorts of things. We also know that um, 
There are information management campaigns that all governments are involved with. So we can't totally trust the the things that come into our minds. We we can't totally be confident in that because we just know there are various misinformation operators and they're not just government, right? I don't want to make it sound like, you know, the government is the only one doing this. This is have lots of people <laughs> doing these hmm. things. Um, so th- there's those kinds of concerns. So the first one I would say is uh, I would call it a kinetic threat. The idea is someone using actual force against a human person. And the other one is more of a uh, information sort of threat that people can do. But then there are are things that I would call a, a competitive threat. So what happens if a government makes its own digital currency and makes every item in the currency trackable Hmm. And then makes that currency required for transactions within its borders. And all of a sudden, a big part of our economic activity is instantly surveilled, observed by governments. So there's that. Then there's also there are legal issues like governments could pass um, uh, regulations about how crypto could operate in different environments. I mean, it's. Because I'm not in the law area, and I, I tend to sort of, I'm more of a hermit, really. <laughs> so I tend to look at these things from sixty thousand feet. But these are the these are the various rumblings, and and uh, I put it all together in my mind and say there's risk here, and and I really can't predict much more than that. There, there was in the, I think in the early 2000s, there was this famous episode of, you know, the rape in cyberspace mm-hmm. this, in this, in this mm-hmm. book. By, I, I read about this in the Lawrence Lessig book. Maybe you can explain uh, what was that about? I mean, and your thoughts on, on that episode. Well, you know, that incident, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit, but it's also, it, it is now come back. Okay. So the issue was there were a bunch of people running avatars in a shared world. So they were running characters in a shared world and someone figured out how to take over someone else's character. The, the, then they operated the character and made it do a lot of, you know, disgusting sexual things. So that would be like Professor Castronova's character in World of Warcraft was taken over by someone and then it went around, you know, soliciting people for sex and things like this and much, much worse. And for the person who was behind the avatar that was captured, that person, um, she said it was extremely traumatic and harmful, which then raised the debate about, well, is it really a crime to take someone's avatar over and have it do uh, sexual things? Is that actually rape? Okay, so there was a big debate about that. But of course, now we have AI porn and we have people whose uh image and likeness is being used against their will in uh, porn videos. And they say that that, some of them say, oh, who cares? But others say this is terrible. It's extremely traumatic. And uh, so we still have are having this this debate. I mean, I think we can all agree that a virtuous person wouldn't do this, but that's we can all agree on virtue. It's harder to agree on law. <laughs> so, right. So it's not clear what the what the legal responses should be. I mean, there was a, a, an episode similar to this I mean, not very long ago, um, in, like in the metaverse. You know, um, 
And um, so some avatar accused another one of, you know, uh, rape, basically. <laughs> and, and this somehow got into like a court, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the judge said, you know, whatever happened in that virtual world, I mean, that was not rape as we typically understand. I mean, rapes to, to mm -hmm. exist, you know, in the legal traditional world, right? So, but mm -hmm. you know, for this person, it was really traumatic as, you, as you're saying, you know, it could be very traumatic and it could feel, you know, really as rape, right? Well, I mean, think about it. It is against the law to call someone up and say awful things to them, right? That's harassment. So, uh, you know, this is what the lawyers are good at. They can say, okay, it's clear that it doesn't fall under the rape statute the way it's currently written. And maybe we should rewrite that statute. But over here, we have a set of laws about things that you're not allowed to say to another person. And it's very specific. And, and it's through a different medium, the telephone, but it's the same sort of activity. So that's a place where law and courts could say, ah, we can apply this set of law to that situation. And I think these kinds of problems will just continue as the, as virtuality takes over more and more of our daily experience. So, I mean, all of this research you, you've been doing has been very influential in, in virtual economy. So what, what are you working on now? What are your current interests and your projects? So people get to know what you are up to these days. So... I haven't written a book in a while. I felt like uh, my last book uh, kind of said everything that I wanted to say. <laughs> and but since then, what I have had one set of little thoughts in in the very back of my head, which is I I feel pretty confident about the way the world will look in a few hundred years. And instead of writing a book or some strident essay about it, I decided to write a novel. Because I mm. thought it would be fun. And so I'm sketching out characters for a novel set several hundred years in the future um, that has all of my guesses about uh, what's going to happen. And then aside from that, I'm designing board games because mm. I like designing board games. So speaking of, of novels, um, so I can imagine you would recommend a bit of bunch of, you know, uh, sci-fi no books or movies to to the audience. I mean, what would you recommend to? Yeah. Well, I think The Matrix is hard to beat. I think that's that's probably the best one. Um, but honestly, I would say go back and read Plato. All right, really? go back or modern philosophy. Go to ancient philosophy and think deeply about the difference between the real and the unreal, and, and uh, kind of rather than than look into what's been thought and said in the last 50 years, I think it's important to go ad fontes, as they say, to the sources and uh, recover what has been said about reality way, way back in the beginning. Um, that's my current reading is I'm going back and reading the classics. I'm, I'm reading histories. I'm reading Greek philosophy. Uh, because, you know, as soon as Here, here's my issue with something like, let's just say Descartes. Descartes says, what if I'm being fooled? What if I'm being tricked? What if nothing here is real? What can I rely on? And so you get radical skepticism, right? Hmm. So we're living in, in an age that's dominated by irony and radical skepticism. All right, fine. So you don't accept anything unless it can be proven mathematically or empirically or something. That's great. What do you do? When you walk up on your son and your son is sitting in a chair and won't move. And when you say, 
son, I want you to be happy. Are you happy? And the son says, yes, I'm totally happy. Okay. I'm sitting outside of him. And if I accept his subjectivity as the ruling uh, uh, norm here, I have to leave him in the chair. Hmm. And, you know, and, and so this is what has been puzzling me. And so I'm trying to recover what would be a more objective like, what if we could develop some sense of uh, an objective, shared sense of this is what a human person should ideally not end up with. <laughs> you know, sitting in a chair all the time? And I don't know if that can be recovered, but but it's certainly the people who talk that way are pre Descartes, and that's that's why I've been sort of going back. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, of this very old, you know, the, the, the cavern myth of, of Plato and, you know, this bunch of prisoners yeah. that they are inside of, of a cave and they are lo looking at the yeah. wall and they, there's it. fire, right? And they yeah, think that the reality is... Yeah. Can you explain how that is? I mean, yeah. Well, the basic idea is that there's a reality outside the cave. and uh, But you're you're caught in a cave. You don't know anything. You've never been outside of the cave. You don't know what the sun looks like. And everything that you can see is a shadow on the wall. And he goes through this whole mechanic of where it comes from. But it's basically you're you're looking at um, someone's projection of what reality is. And the question is, do you rely on it? You know, do you try to understand this shadow that's being projected on the wall of, let's say, a man? Is that a man? Well, I don't think so. I'm a man. It looks kind of like a man. I wonder if I could go somewhere and see what a real man looks like. And the, the people in the cave who are running the cave are, say, nope, nope, there's nothing more to this than that shadow. That's all the reality that there is. And uh, your reality is whatever you make of that shadow. Okay. And then Plato obviously is advising us to get up out of the cave <laughs> and go out into the sunshine and, and see real things. But, you know, today, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners were saying, will say, there isn't anything out there. It's just what we believe to be true is what's true. And I understand the logic, but it doesn't help me with the problem of my son sitting in a chair in VR saying he's completely happy. I, <laughs> this reminds me also, I mean, no, this is, this is super interesting. You know, it's like, what do you prefer, you know, living a real life Or just, you know, being a brain in a vat where you have like these electric impulses that yeah. make you think that you are like a, like a matrix, you know, situation. Yeah, you're just <laughs> completely happy to be there. And it does come up in that movie, The Matrix. But, you know, it's come up in other contexts. If you go back to the early 70s, there was a philosopher named um, Robert Nozick who proposed, you know, what, what if we had an experience machine? You just press the button and you're happy. Well, is that good or bad? And, and, and you know, would we accept that? And then uh, in a more, much more practical context, uh, people who are working in economic development also mm. start to question some of this because uh, let, me, let me just explain what this is. Suppose you want to help a country that is, uh, you, you know, you call it less developed. And the way you help them is by giving them a better economy. So they all have a lot more money. Mm. And most of like the World Bank and the UN would say, great, that's a fantastic outcome. But um, what if the way that money came into the country was it was all owned by a certain number of people and that the result was a lot of pollution and, and infant mortality went up and all of these other substantive goods that are not measured in terms of 
dollar well-being. And so uh, there was a, an economist named Amartya Sen who said, we need to get rid of this sort of subjectivist utilitarian set of goals and come up with a robust, concrete sense of what is a good life for a human hmm. person and use that as our goal. That's what we want to develop. And, and so I, I don't know where that literature went, but it, it, it applies directly to this problem of people, you know, sitting in a chair their whole lives. I guess it brings back to Aristotle, you know, and what is happiness and eudaimonia and all those questions right. from the ancient diet days, right? You know, you're kind of yeah. the same kind of discussion, right? If right? We, right. If we, if we just go back as far as Descartes or heaven forbid, we only go back as far as Derrida and Lacan. Mm -hmm. If we only go back that far, we, we just, we can't answer this problem. <laughs> and if we go back as far as Descartes, I think we're still in trouble, which is why I think uh, we got to go way, way back. And I think people who have a, a wisdom tradition, you know, not, not philosophy, but, you know, some sort of, you know, whether it's a religion or a set of, you know, philosophical norms about, let's say, nature or a mystic sense. I think we need to invoke those as well as this goes forward. You know, you know, in lots of these science fiction movies, and I now you're saying this, I'm thinking that you always have this, you know, uh, cave, you know, myth for Plato in different settings. You know, Matrix is obvious. We know they are, in, you know, in this, you know, battery stuff and the, everything happens in their mind. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you have watched or read the Congress by Stanislav Lem, and you yeah. know, this is people okay. who they live in the world of um, like uh, also shanty towns and they are all the time like high on LSD and in their mind mm -hmm. they are just in this colorful world you know like LSD world so you have that you have really better one the same you know the, the bad real world and the you know fascinating you know game world and then you have And the other one is like a brand new world, you know, you just take your Soma and then you are happy in this, you know, and then you mm -hmm. kind of looks like you, we have this duality still present everywhere, you know, but people mm -hmm. prefer to, to stay in the, in the cavern, maybe. Well, <laughs> you know, each person has to think about that. So it, it's not like these are new ideas, right? This is people have been speculating about this for a long time. And it's just uh, all people have a different reaction to the idea of truth. It's just if you think it's if you think it's fundamentally important to live, let's say, quote, a true life, uh, uh, let's say a flesh life, you know, if, if that's important. But other people say, why should that why should that be particularly important? Isn't the mind more important than the body? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's something we're all going to have to debate. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to both sides. I've always said that, uh, I've always said this example. I've said that if you have, let's say a husband and father, who's got three little kids at home, he should not be spending 80 hours a week in a video game. Right. But if, if the person we're talking about is someone with, let's say a different body shape than, than is expected of her. And she's 16 and everyone's picking on her where she lives. And, inside deep down inside she's an angel and if she goes online she's treated with respect and love i can't blame her for doing that so you know the, the, what makes it interesting is that it's so complicated and uh yeah i just uh, i think a lot about where i think this might might go and uh um 
yeah, I, I, I it, it, it's fun to think about, but I don't know that there are any easy answers. Ted, one last question. Um, so yeah. what would you recommend to someone who would want to take the red pill and, and learn about, you know, the, the type of work you've been doing? I mean, what uh, do you recommend mm -hmm. for people who want to learn about your, your work, what books that you have written, articles, uh, uh, anything you want to recommend? I mean, I, I would recommend people read my latest book, Life, Life is a Game, because I try to get up out of all this stuff and, and talk to gamers. Okay, so I've always been interested in gamers and their attitudes. And, um, and this comes especially from the love I have for my students. I see so many students who are really interested in games and they aren't doing life very well. Hmm. And it occurs to me that if, if you're good at games, that means you're good at strategy. And if you're good at strategy, you ought to be good at life because life is a game, right? There it is. So that metaphor has been used forever. Life is a game and it depends on how you play your cards. And I'm trying to talk to the reader and say, take that very seriously. You know, if, if, if you're a, a Dungeons and Dragons player and thinking about how to play Dungeons and Dragons, you should look at your life and ask yourself, how do I want to build this character? Right. What the character that's me, <laughs> what, what kind of choices would make sense? And I, I, uh, I go through a, a, a set of pretty simple intellectual concepts that I hope would help a gamer uh, sort of reorient the way that they think about their lives and be more proactive about what they're doing, just the way we're proactive in a game. So, like, for example, what's the victory condition? What is it to win? You have mm -hmm. to decide that yourself, of course. But then once you decide it, you should choose a consistent set of behaviors that get you toward that. Just be a gamer and you should end up happy. And I guess there's no better way than that to end this, this episode of the podcast. Yeah. Ted Castronova, thank you very much for being with us. I am Federico As. I am the president of the Cooperative Cleros. And this was another episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you.